Welcome to Liquid Church Media. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered live at Liquid Church by Pastor Tim Lucas. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. Liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins. All right, hey, welcome to Liquid, everyone. Glad you're here. We're doing this series, Crosswalk, leading up to Easter. What we've been doing is walking chronologically with Jesus to these key sites from the upper room to the empty tomb where we'll arrive on Easter. It's been quite a journey. We've stopped these key locations in Jerusalem. We started in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then we walked to the courtyard of Caiaphas. And today, we arrive at the palace of Pilate. That's Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor who's responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. Well, today I'm going to share a message entitled, The Politics of Pilate, okay, which is very timely since Easter falls during an election season this year. Uh, I kind of love when God kind of arranges the calendar and our culture together. And this Easter uh, falls during the presidential primaries. A lot of our nation has been kind of riveted watching the debates on television as, as uh, candidates duke it out for donors and delegates and endorsements and uh, hopefully their nominees, you know, their party's nominee for president. Quick show of hands, just out of curiosity, how many of you have watched the debates? You've watched some debates or the town halls? Okay, how many of you find it entertaining? Like, you're like, oh, this is fun to watch. It's like the circus came to town, you know? Like a reality show. How many of you find it disgusting? You're like, you can't believe, wow, a sea of hands. You can't believe how low we've sunk as a nation, right? Easter is a time of, you know, faith, hope, and love, and attack ads. And, uh, you know, this crazy rhetoric that's grown personal, nasty, and downright dirty. Uh, politics can be a dirty business. Um, they, I've heard it said politicians in diapers have one thing in common. You need to change both regularly and for the same reasons. Think about it. Uh, actually, I do not approve of political jokes. I've seen too many of them get elected. Uh, but we're going to go on. What's interesting is 2,000 years ago, in the week leading up to Easter, Jesus came face to face with the most powerful politician of his day, and that is Pontius Pilate. At this time, Israel was a captive nation. They were under the authority of the Roman Empire. And Pilate was the Roman prefect or governor who ruled over Judea, which is where Jerusalem was located. And as governor, Pilate plays this kind of crucial role in the crucifixion of Jesus on a Roman cross. He had the power to let Jesus go free or condemn him to death. And in Mark 15, Pilate makes this critical calculation and several political compromises that really changed the course of history, if you think about it. In a lot of ways, Pilate is a symbol of failed leadership, kind of a what not to do for public officials. And in his encounter with Jesus, I think there are some important lessons in leadership we can take away. This really comes at a perfect time as our nation prepares. We're going to vote, right, for a change in political leadership at the presidential level. So today, I want to look at the politics of Pilate in Mark 15 and then apply it to our world. Now, let me make two quick disclaimers at the outset of this message. This is not a political message, okay? I'm not going to make an endorsement. I'm not going to tell you how to vote. I don't think that's the role of the church. Uh, plus, some of you have already made up your mind, right? How many of you, if the election were held today, you know who you'd vote for, right? You've got the man or woman of your, your choosing, right? New Jersey is a diverse state. We have a very diverse church. That's awesome. So there's probably a lot of diversity in this room and at our campuses. But let me be clear. I'm not trying to change your mind, but I am going to challenge your heart. Because I think what we're about to read in Mark 15 will give you a fresh lens through which to view potential candidates for public office. My goal is to help you see the current election through the lens of faith, not fear. Right now, there's a lot of fear in our, our culture. But I want to give you a faith filter 
for elected leadership so that you can evaluate candidates based on their character, not their campaign antics. And secondly, I'm going to avoid talking about specific candidates after this next sentence, okay? Whether it's Hillary or Ted or he who shall not be named. Uh, you know, he's got a huge personality, uh, as you know. Uh, but from here on out, I'm going to avoid naming names because my point is not to criticize candidates or promote a specific party. But I guarantee today you're going to be like, that's in the Bible. You're going to see some modern-day parallels to Pilate. And some examples of what he does are going to remind you of certain candidates. Don't let that upset you, okay? They say the goal of good preaching is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable, okay? I hope this sermon does both. Because if you're here today and you're, you feel a lot of agita, you're like, oh, we're talking about politics. This is going to give you comfort as we discover that, listen, ultimately, God's in control of who's in control. That, that's the truth. Even when your guy doesn't win, God will still use deeply flawed leaders to accomplish his purposes. But if you're here today and you're like, oh, good, politics. You're convinced your candidate's right. Your party is always the right one. This may give you pause to stop and kind of reevaluate from a biblical perspective. Because the reality is, as a Christian, our hope is not in the government, it's in God alone. Amen? The next president, whoever he or she is, is not our savior, okay? Christ is our savior. He's our coming king. The Bible says his government will never end. So as Christians, we want our faith to inform our politics, not the other way around. So let's see what we can learn from our Bibles as Jesus encounters the politics of Pilate. You can flip in your phone or your Bible to Mark chapter 15. And as you're locating that, let me give you a little background about Pilate. As I said, he was a, a governor over Judea, and he did basically what most governors do. He was responsible for collecting taxes, building roads, keeping the peace in the, what's now known as the West Bank of Israel. And he represented the government of Rome. That was under Caesar Tiberius. Israel was occupied by Rome, and the people were bitter about it. If you want to know how was the public at the time of Pilate, they were very angry. They were heavily taxed. They were misrepresented. They were often abused. And they felt like, you know, our best days are behind us. As a nation, we have all this diminished glory and power. And so they hated Rome. They hated Pilate because he governed with a heavy hand. He really was, any words or actions spoken against Caesar were met with brutal, overwhelming force. For instance, Pilate, historians note, he built an aqueduct to bring water into Jerusalem, and he raided the temple treasury to pay for it. And people, like, went bananas. They, like, protested because they said, hey, you're stealing church money to pay for public work projects. And so they had a protest. Guess what Pilate did? He sent an entire Roman legion of soldiers into the protesters, wearing peasant disguises with knives and daggers, and they slaughtered and murdered over 250 unarmed Jewish peasants, including women and children. So understand, this is a guy comfortable with power, violence, and the use of lethal force against enemies of the state. Crucifixion did not start with Jesus. It was commonplace for any rebels who dared defy Rome. So this is a tinderbox we're about to read. This is a highly charged, polarized environment that Jesus enters into. And here's what Mark 15 says. It says, very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Now remember, Jewish leaders hate Jesus, right? Why? They're envious of his popularity with people. They hate how Jesus undermines their authority. Jesus is always preaching about their hypocrisy in public. He mocks their empty rituals. He goes to the temple and flips over the tables of the money changers as a way to say, I'm calling out your corruption. 
In short, Jesus threatened the power and control over the people. So the Jewish leaders arrest him. They bring him to the courtyard of Caiaphas for this mock trial by the Sanhedrin. And even though there's no evidence of wrongdoing, there's false testimony, they find Jesus guilty of blasphemy or claiming to be God, which is a verdict punishable by death. There's just one problem. The Jewish leaders had no power to enact the death sentence. They could, only a Roman government official could do that. So they walk Jesus to the palace of Pilate, hoping Pilate will carry out the death sentence for them. And so Pilate starts questioning Jesus. Verse 2, he says this. Are you the, say this together, king of the Jews? And this is a political question. Because at this moment, the Jews are waiting a Messiah, this prophesied military leader who's going to lead this political over, uh, revolution. This Messiah is going to overthrow Rome. He's going to liberate the people from heavy taxes and establish a new government. So when Pilate says to Jesus, he says, okay, let's start this. Are you the king of the Jews? He's asking, do I have to worry about you? Are you a member of the Tea Party? Like, are you a, a revolutionary who's going to like overthrow the government and destroy everything? Are you, Jesus, a political person? And Jesus says, you've said so, which is interesting. Verse 3, the chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of. In other words, the charge of blasphemy meant nothing to Pilate. He's a Roman governor. He's like, blasphemy is a religious crime. It's not a political one. So the Jewish leaders came up with three other charges. They said treason. Jesus is guilty of saying he's a king, which means he's a rival to Caesar, so treason. Secondly, tax evasion. Jesus told people not to pay their taxes, which was not true. And third, terrorism. They said Jesus is causing these riots all throughout the region. So they come up with these three accusations. Treason, tax evasion, and terrorism. Those are like the trumped-up charges they bring against Jesus. But Jesus still made what? No reply. And Pilate was amazed. Why? Because Pilate, during his political career, he had seen thousands and thousands of people come before him. And when every one of them was about to be crucified, they caved, they shuddered, they cried. And here Jesus stands with this self-assurance and this peace that rattles Pilate. Very different when an inmate is on death row. Why doesn't Jesus actually reply or defend himself? Because at this point, Jesus has no reason to prolong the trial or save himself. The time has come for him to sacrifice his life to save the world. In fact, Isaiah 53 made this prophecy about Jesus. It said, as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus says nothing. So Pilate does something clever. He makes a very shrewd political calculation. He says, you know what? I don't want to be responsible for executing an innocent man. So he tells the crowd, you decide. Look at verse 6. Now, it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. So Pilate's clever. The whole crowd is here. Imagine like this big kind of rally and people are upset. And he says, hey guys, we're going to play a game. It's called the People's Choice Awards. <laughs> okay? And on the one side, he has Jesus. Right? On the other, he brings out Barabbas, who is a convicted murderer in the rebellion against Rome. So one man's innocent, one man is guilty. And Pilate plays this game with the crowd, the People's Choice Awards. He says, do you want me 
to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate. Knowing it was a very important phrase, say it together, out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. So understand, it's a stacked deck. The Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, they have stocked the crowd with party loyalists who are out for blood. So the minute Pilate takes the vote, they yell and kind of whip up the crowd in a frenzy. They stir up this mob mentality. They're like, you know, we want Barabbas. Kill Jesus. And Jesus, listen, Jesus, God in the flesh, becomes a pawn in the most powerful political struggle in human history. But Pilate is a smart politician. He knows what's going on. He knows it's out of self-interest these guys want Jesus dead. So like a good politician, here's what he does. What does a good politician do? Puts his finger to the wind and takes a poll. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. And all this political pressure comes to a head. Pilate is in a tight spot. He is faced with a tough decision. What does he do with Jesus? The last thing he needs is a riot in Jerusalem during Passover. You've got hundreds of thousands of Jews all over the region pouring into the city. So he makes a critical decision, a political compromise that undoubtedly haunted him the rest of his life. Look at verse 15. Important phrase. Let's say this out loud together. Wanting to satisfy the crowd. Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged or whipped and handed him over to be what? Crucified. Pilate is the most powerful politician. He's the governor. And even though he knows Jesus is innocent, he caves to public pressure. His base is angry. They are out for blood. And so he approves the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. You know, it's funny to me how sometimes God's word just kind of comes alive and intersects with our culture. I was reading Mark 15 this week, and, I, and typically I read, you know, with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. And as you think about it, think carefully, Pontius Pilate really is the perfect politician to represent this moment in American history. He is cynical, he is calculating, and he is under pressure from a bloodthirsty base. See, times change, but politics don't. 2,000 years later, here in America, we live in an age of pilot politics. Now, I understand no aspect of our political life can compare to the horror that Jesus went through on the cross. But this year, our nation is witnessing a version of pilot politics that could have devastating consequences. Right now, the electorate is angry. Both sides are voting with their middle finger. I think we can say it that way, right? Like Israel, our nation is looking for someone to blame for their diminished power, and is desperate for a strong man to restore our nation to its former power and influence and glory. Does that sound familiar? That's Israel. But it's also, see, the truth is, here's the truth, listen to me. When people feel angry or afraid, they'd rather have someone who is strong and wrong than someone who's weak and right. And it looks like that's what's happening right now in our culture. There's this mob mentality that prevails. And our leaders, both elected officials and candidates, will do or say just about anything to stay in power. They'll tell half-truths, they'll slander their enemies, they'll pander to special interests, and cave to the crowd if it means winning approval ratings. Well, if you look here in Mark 15, I think you can see five characteristics of pilot politics. 
And if you're taking notes, I've outlined these. You can kind of fill in the blank. And, and I, I'm not saying look at it, and I'm not saying like it's cast aspersions on candidates. In fact, let's look at this and see ourselves, our own reflection in this mirror. Because pilot politics is when leaders cater to special interests first. Politics, what is politics? Politics is the art of taking competing interests and coming up with a fair and equitable compromise for both sides. That's what, that's what politics is about, right? The challenge is when one side is more powerful or more rich or influential than the other, and then it influences the way that a leader governs or decides. In verse 10, you read it yourself. Pilate says, hey, what do you, you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Knowing it was out of what? Self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. The Pharisees and Sadducees, they were basically like special interest groups today. They had all the power over the public. They had all the riches. They had all the influence. And they had a cozy arrangement with Pilate. The agreement went like this. Pilate will stay out of Rome's way as long as you stay out of the temple's business. And so Pilate and the priest, they had a common interest, preserve the status quo. The last thing Pilate needs is a public revolt, because that's not going to sit well with Rome. Historians say he was actually warned by Tiberius not to have another rebellion. So he caters to the special interests of his religious base to make sure the status quo is not challenged. Now, aren't you so glad 2,000 years later, special interests don't affect our politics at all today? Obviously they do. And again, I'm not being partisan. Republican, Democrat, independent, doesn't matter. I'm talking about all of us, right? An obvious example of this would be like the extreme gun lobby, right? Our generation, we have lived through mass shootings, right? Columbine, Sandy Hook, you know, Charleston, San Bernardino, whatever the next one will be next week. All these mass shootings, and yet leaders in Washington have had an inability to form any, any, any meaningful common sense like legislation. I'm not even talking, I'm not talking about like, taking away Second Amendment rights, like basic common sense precautions, like background checks for, you know, the mentally ill. How is that not happening? Easy. Because the extreme gun lobby is a very powerful special interest. They are adept at screaming and stirring up the public, and very few elected officials, Republican or Democrat, either side of the aisle, are willing to take them on. It'll just keep happening, but Washington is paralyzed. That's pilot politics. A second example would be Wall Street. One of the most, you know, biggest special interest groups is the banking system. And again, I'm not kicking people who work on Wall Street, you work for a bank and you're in finance, praise God for you, be light in, you know, a dark area. But there's one candidate right now for president who was paid $675,000 for three speeches to top Wall Street banks. So $225,000 per speech for 40 minutes of talking. First off, I was like, how do you get that gig? That's amazing, right? <laughs> And the question is, well, how could you possibly be impartial, right? How can you say you're not going to be influenced by people who are paying you that kind of money? Again, you, you can call Wall Street greedy and manipulative, but they're not stupid. <laughs> Special interests, they donate millions of dollars to super PACs, both Republicans and Democrats, for one reason. The point is to help curry favor and influence decisions in their interest. So see how this works? Instead of serving the public good, there's a vested interest in preserving the status quo. And pilot politicians just accept that arrangement. They cater to special interests to preserve the base and protect their position. Quality number one, think about our elected leaders. Quality number two, pilot politicians then are very good at condemning the scapegoat. This is the most common tactic in politics today. Right now in America, 
people feel like the world is changing and our nation is falling behind. That's why people are angry. They feel our country is losing power and influence economically, globally, militarily, and people are looking for someone to blame. That's what a scapegoat is, right? A scapegoat is like a person or a group of people you blame for what's going wrong. And this election season, we have had plenty of scapegoating, right? Who's the scapegoat? Oh, it's the Mexicans, the Mexicans, right? One candidate called our neighbors to the south criminals and rapists and drug dealers. So we build a wall, great wall, big wall, terrific wall, huge wall, right? By the way, did you see the president of Mexico said, he said, I am not paying for your wall, which was so, he actually said it another way, but I'll let it go. Uh, to which one candidate replied, it just got 10 feet higher, right? It's like, it's, it's funny, but there's a danger to scapegoating because there's always a victim. Did you know that this term scapegoat actually comes from the Bible? That's where it first appears. In the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 16, a scapegoat was a literal goat that the Jewish high priest picked out and he'd say, we're going to symbolically lay the sins of the people on it and send it out into the wilderness to die. In fact, during Yom Kippur, a goat was placed on either side of the high priest and then he would decide which goat goes free and which one is going to be sacrificed for the sins of the people. And here in Mark, Pilate does the same thing. He does a reversal of the scapegoat ceremony. He's like, on one side, Barabbas, the convicted murderer. On the other side, Jesus, the Lord of life. And he says, you guys pick. Who do you want to throw under the bus? You pick the scapegoat. Pilate says, I see you're angry. I see you're frustrated. I see you're upset and scared. And you want somebody to blame for your diminished power as a nation. So you vote. What do they say? We want Barabbas. And Jesus becomes the literal scapegoat, a sacrifice for sin. The innocent literally dies for the guilty. See, blaming the scapegoat is part and parcel of Pilate politics. Who's the scapegoat? It's the Muslims. They're all terrorists, you know, deny them entry, monitor the mosques. No, it's the rich. The rich are the scapegoats. It's the 1% who are ripping off the poor. They're the problem. No, it's China. It's the Chinese. Let's start a trade war, you know, with them. So show them. We're going to show them. We're not going to be messed with. Who's the scapegoat? It's the immigrants. Deport all 11 million and keep the Syrian refugees out. You don't know who's coming. Again, I'm not critiquing. Who do you think I'm talking? I'm not critiquing one party or the other. Both sides are equally adept at scapegoating because it's effective. See, when you appeal to people's fear and anger, you can insert the scapegoat of your choice. It's the religious right. No, it's the liberal left. No, it's the conservative. It's the gays. They're the enemy. They're the evil ones. They're the ones who are responsible. We're going to blame them for what's gone wrong in our culture. And they must be defeated and destroyed. See, scapegoating is very effective if you want to unite a people against a common enemy. Make America hate again. <laughs> but Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, not the dividers. And the problem is with blame shifting is when you condemn a scapegoat, you actually deflect attention from a more thoughtful, nuanced debate about the deeper global forces behind more issues. Of course there are problems with immigration. Of course there are gaps in our system that need to be overhauled. But can it be done in a way that filters out the bad apples without tearing apart families? See, scapegoating is simple. Solutions are hard. And in this election season, there are plenty of causes to condemn. Don't fall for it like Pilate did, refused to condemn the scapegoat. Instead, as a Christian, we must commit to telling the truth even when it costs us. Characteristic number three of Pilate politics, when leaders treat truth as relative, meaning 
Truth is not absolute. It's not a fixed point. Truth is relative. It's a moving target, and you can change it. In John 18, there's this fascinating exchange between Pilate and Jesus behind the scenes. Basically, there's this huge rally out front. People are out for blood. And Pilate takes Jesus backstage for a private one-on-one conversation. The first casualty of Pilate politics is always the truth. Truth? What is truth? Veritas? Good as veritas, as they say in Latin. See, Pilate believed the truth is basically whatever the majority of people agree with or whatever helps you achieve your agenda or political goals. Truth, what's the truth? There's a broken moral compass. It can go either way depending on who the audience is. Truth, what is truth? You, you say the unborn life should be protected. Who's to say when life begins? You know, you're not a scientist. That's just your opinion. No, actually, God's truth says that all life is sacred. <laughs> it's actually a fixed thing. Truth, what is truth? The marriage is between a man and a woman. Oh, that's, that's your approach. That's old-fashioned. That's just tradition. Times change. Truth changes. Really? See, with Pilate, the truth is not this fixed, stable point by which you make just decision. It's a moving target with no moral absolutes. There's no sense of right and wrong. There's only shades of gray that can be swayed by opinion polls. And then when politicians get called on it, they say, well, my thinking has evolved on the issue. The truth, guys, is not... Our culture acts like the truth is not something to be told, but something to be spun, depending on the audience. Pilot politicians treat truth as relative. They spin the facts. They tell half-truths or exaggerate claims or outright falsehood. I want you to listen. Listen. As a Christ follower, guys, you have a responsibility to tell the truth and measure our leaders by their willingness to do the same. Integrity counts. Truth-telling counts. One of the ways you can do that is to just listen to the debates in the town halls and actually fact-check what's being said. I came across a very helpful nonpartisan website uh, called politifact.com. I put it in your bulletin. It's staffed by independent journalists. It's actually won the Pulitzer Prize. And they have this thing called the truth meter Look down here in the bottom corner. You can see it here. They basically fact-check statements made by each of the candidates. And so whatever a politician says, they have independent journalists. They research it and rate it for accuracy on the truth meter And you can see the, uh, the, the different gradings are true. Mostly true, half true, mostly false, false, and then this category, pants on fire. <laughs> As in liar, liar, pants on fire. Um, you can spend hours on this nonpartisan website just seeing how warped our you know, national debate is. But very helpful way to fact check leaders. In fact, it works for all levels of government, from city council members up to sitting senators to candidates for president. And I was looking at this, and I was like, it got me thinking, like, wouldn't it be awesome if during the debates there was like a giant truthometer, you know, <laughs> behind the candidates, and every time like one of them got caught spinning the truth, like their pants, boom, spontaneously caught on fire, you know? It'd be awesome. I tuned in for that. As Christians, we need to value the truth in elected officials. No matter what our culture says, truth is not a moving target. It is a fixed point. And where you don't have a basis for transcendent truth as revealed in God's words, it means there's no basis for right or wrong. Justice becomes whatever works or helps those in power stay in power. But Jesus said, I am the way and the what? The truth and the life. See, here in Mark 15, there's like no question in Pilate's mind that Jesus is innocent. He actually tries to release him multiple times. But the minute the crowd threatens to tell Caesar, hey, if you let Jesus go, you're not a friend of Caesar. Pilate gets rattled, and he steps over the truth and caves to the crowd. 
quality number four of Pilate politics. In Jerusalem, Pilate takes a straw poll. You guys tell me. What do you want me to do with Jesus? Crucify him. Crucify him. And this is the true test of leadership. What do you do when the people you're leading are angry and on the verge of violence? I'm, talking, I'm, I'm not talking about the news right now, but think about it this week. As a leader, the question is this. Do you indulge their darker demons or do you appeal to their better angels? Do you appeal to their darker demons or do you appeal to their better angels? Think about it. Pilot politicians always pander to whatever the public prejudice is at the moment. How should we handle immigrants? Deport them. How about the Muslims? Bomb them. America's enemies, destroy them. There's no logic. It's just emotions. There's no common sense. It's just a soundbite culture full of angry rhetoric and ad hominem attacks that fuel the flames of division. But true leaders, godly leaders, people who actually respect God and their opponents as made in God's image, don't pander to the public's darker demons. True leaders call out our better angels. An example that comes to mind is Abraham Lincoln. In 1860, when our nation stood on the brink of civil war, President Lincoln actually implored Americans in a, in a national speech. He actually turned that phrase, better angels. He said, let me call out the better angels of our nature before we commit to dissolve this union. And basically, Lincoln was pleading for civility during one of the most bitter and divisive periods in American history. If you think about it now today, things are so different. In modern politics, civility and respect for your opponent, it's a foreign concept. There is a mean-spirited spirit of bombast, indecency, and downright rudeness that's infected our politics. And it has causing, it's causing right now enormous damage to both Republicans and Democrats alike. It's like, where's the humility? Where's the decency? And just respect for people with whom you disagree. It's embarrassing. My daughter and I were watching one of the debates. My daughter ran for eighth grade president of her middle school, right? And so we're watching the debates. And this one candidate makes fun of the physical appearance of his opponent. And she's watching. She goes, Daddy, I'd never be allowed to run for student council if I said that. I'd get suspended. Guys, this election isn't for middle school president. It's for POTUS, the president of the United States. And civility matters. Decency matters. Integrity matters, especially in a time of great political division. In the, listen, in the case of Lincoln, even after the Civil War began, Lincoln was under pressure to end it prematurely. But he said, I'm standing firm. I'm not caving to the crowd and end it prematurely because of the evil of slavery. It must be abolished. And at the same time, he said, I'm not going to slander the South. Because he knew, Lincoln knew, once the war was over, the real task of healing a broken nation would begin. And so Lincoln appealed to people's better angels, not their darker demons. He didn't fan the flames of division or cave to his base by throwing his enemies under the bus. Can I ask, how much more today, in our age of pilot politics, should we expect our leaders to build up and not tear down our public discourse? It's like enough with the bitterness, the bombast. Please, don't fan that stuff on Facebook. We deserve a leader who reflects the humility and courage of Jesus Christ, not some coward who caves to the crowd like Pilate. Who did you think I was talking about? Leads us to our fifth and final characteristic of Pilate politics, leaders who pay lip service to Christ but don't believe in their heart. I never want you to forget this. In the end, Pilate acknowledged 
that Jesus was king of the Jews. In fact, after he had Jesus whipped and flogged into a bloody mess, Pilate held up a sign that said, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And the sign was meant to be ironic. Here's a king, obviously stripped naked and executed in public, has no power whatsoever. But it's Pilate's way of paying lip service to Christ and saying to his base, he's like, is this what you want? You get it. <laughs> Here's your king. I'm going to say publicly what needs to be said to satisfy the public, but then I'm going to do what needs to be done to stay in my power. And let's be honest, in this election season, guys, both sides hijacked Jesus for all sorts of political purposes, right? Both sides. Republic, you know, Republicans claim Jesus is on our side, right? God is right. We're right. We're the religious right. And if the country's going to get go right, we need to vote right. You know, vote Republican. Of course Jesus is conservative. That's a no-brainer. Democrats are like, no way. Jesus is, is a Democrat. He's on our side. Think about it. Jesus was a healthcare dispensing machine, <laughs> right? Half his ministry was healing people for free. Healing the lame, the blind, he didn't charge anywhere. Free health care for everyone. And he champions the poor. Clearly, Jesus is a Democrat. I mean, when he rode into Jerusalem, what was he riding? Donkey. Done. Democrat. The point is, each side can point to something Jesus said or did to support their position on a particular issue. It is so easy in our soundbite culture to cherry pick a verse from the Bible and claim God's on our side and politicians do it all the time. So which side is Jesus on, Pastor Tim? Is Jesus right or Jesus left? Listen very carefully. Jesus didn't come to our world to take sides. Jesus came to take over. That's what he came for. And when Christ comes into your life, he doesn't settle for lip service. He literally demands lordship over every area. He says, I'm king over your job. I'm king over your family. I'm king over your checkbook. I'm king over your sexuality. I'm king over your politics. I own it all. Can I ask if you made Christ king over every area of your life? Because that's what it means to be a Christian. You look at Jesus and you say, I'm going to pick up my cross and follow him. See, some believers pay lip service to Christ just to score political points. But the truth is their hearts are far from him. They won't give up control of their own kingdom. And we still think might makes right. See, at the end of the day, guys, here in Mark 15, you're presented with a choice. At the end of this account, you have two leaders standing before you. On the one side, there's Pilate, and on the other side, there's Jesus. Two kingdoms. Pilate represents Rome, the kingdom of the earth that uses force and violence to preserve power at all costs. And Jesus represents the kingdom of heaven which the symbol is the cross. It operates on the logic of love, meaning humility and self-sacrifice, where you use your power to serve those beneath you. And do you, what do you do for your enemies? Do you destroy them? You forgive them. Guys, remember, our kingdom is not of this world, so we need to stop pretending our elected leaders are from there. I think we can just agree. Can I say this? Jesus would have made a terrible president. The climax of Jesus' career was not when he was elected, it's when he was crucified. But that's what power looks like in God's kingdom, when you humbly give it up to serve and save those who are perishing. Not just to win votes, but to win hearts. Pilate acknowledged Jesus as king, but he said, I'm not giving up my kingdom. Jesus surrenders his kingdom to save his people. And that included Barabbas, and it includes Tim Lucas, and it includes you. And this is the hope, guys. At the end of the day, as believers, our hope is not in any earthly leader. 
Our trust is in Jesus Christ alone. Amen? He's our crucified Savior, and he's our coming King. And the Bible says one day soon he will return to set all things right and restore perfect justice and perfect peace to all nations. You know what that means? You don't have to freak out. This is so liberating. I know this is a heavy message. Everyone take a deep breath. Ready? Listen, watch. This November, we're going to elect somebody. It might be a man, might be a woman, might be a Republican, a Democrat, an independent, someone we haven't heard of yet. Here's a guarantee. Whoever he or she is, they will be flawed in some way. They are not the Messiah. They are not the anointed one. There are good and bad in every party, in every race, in every religion. You know what? That means your job is to pray for them, to vote your content, conscience, and then you practice civility. You actually show respect to those who you disagree with. You speak well of them. And then you get to go like this, relax, relax. Because at the end of the day, listen, God's in control of who's in control. You know what Romans 13 says? The authorities that exist have been established by God. This is so comforting. This is a truth I want to leave you with. Because I watch the debates, guys. And half the times I turn off the television and discuss it. I'm like, this is hopeless. The system is so messed up and seems broken beyond repair. But if you fear for our nation's future, Jesus has a word of comfort. In John 19, just before Pilate crucifies Jesus, he says this. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or crucify you? And Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from where? Above heaven. In other words, Jesus, like Pilate, don't fool yourself. Your power doesn't come from Rome. And your power doesn't come from these people. All authority on earth is delegated by God in heaven. And he alone is sovereign. So that means even when people elect a demagogue or someone who's a tyrant or an authoritarian kind of guy with all sorts of biases, even if you pick the wrong guy at the end of the day, you can relax. Because God's in control of who is in control. He determines who steers the wheels of government. And scripture says ultimately God appoints kings and presidents and senators and governors and some of them are courageous, some of them are cowardly, and some of them are corrupt. And guess what? God uses all of them to accomplish his plan of salvation. Amen? Isn't that a comforting truth in election season? God's in control, say it with me, of who's in control. The long story of scripture in human history is God working in spite of and through deeply flawed leaders. He weaves their decisions, even disastrous ones, into his plan of salvation. That's what he did with Pilate. That's why we're here today. 2,000 years ago, God used the cowardly execution of his son to set you free. So don't freak out. God's sovereign plan will not be thwarted even by the antics of this crazy election cycle. If anything, the deeply flawed leaders we're watching remind us that the problems of our world will not be solved by man, but by Jesus Christ alone. Amen? Therefore, reflect and relax. Reflect. I want you to evaluate people's leadership through a filter of faith. Pilate gives us a very helpful one. Ask, do they conform to the character of Christ? But then relax. God's got this. And no matter who wins this election, we can rest assured that God is in his throne. And he's in control of who's in control. Amen? Let's bow our heads for prayer together. Jesus, we thank you. You are the true king. You are the only king who laid down his life for his people. You sacrificed your life in place of Barabbas and Tim Lucas and every man and woman 
humble enough to admit our sin. And Jesus, we believe you're coming to rule and reign as our only king forever. But while we wait, we pray right now for our leaders. God, we pray for your wisdom and discernment for godly men and women to rise up at all levels of government, humbled before you with a genuine desire to serve people and not lord their power over them. Father, I ask for your Holy Spirit to restore a spirit of unity and decency and civility to your church and our nation that it would honor you and that we'd get the leader of your choosing who would serve for the good of your people and for the glory of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Everybody said together, amen. amen. Thanks for listening to Liquid Church Media. If you were inspired or challenged by today's message, we hope you'll tell a friend. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. Liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins.